My name is Elise Neville, and this is Wrestling Before God, episode number six, Doctrine and Practices. Welcome to Wrestling Before God, the podcast where I, as an average member of the church, research and discuss some of the big questions that I encountered during that week's Come Follow Me lesson. Thanks for being here. I am so excited about today's discussion. There are so many interesting things to talk about today. Today we're covering Doctrine and Covenants 27 through 28. And just as a brief overview, Doctrine and Covenants section 27 discusses the sacrament. Apparently Joseph Smith, when he receives this revelation, is on his way to get some supplies for the sacrament. It also has a kind of interesting attendance list of these people that will be at this last great feast that Jesus Christ talks about. And then we have the armor of God. And then section 28 talks about the order of the church and how the prophet receives revelation for the church. And we'll get into that a little bit later too. But in my study of these sections, the very first question I had was about the sacrament, which is the first topic that comes up in the first section. And just that one topic is going to take up basically all the time we have today, because it is so interesting. I went down this giant rabbit hole, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So my question was prompted by this phrase in section 27, verse 2, which says, For behold, I say unto you that it mattereth not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink when ye partake of the sacrament. And I just thought to myself, it mattereth not. In the United States, the common elements of the sacrament are bread and water. But according to this scripture, that's subject to change. And I get that that's not a huge deal. Like, so we can change the bread and water to wafers and grape juice. Great. No big deal. But really, over the last couple of years, we've seen lots of things change. We've seen the three-hour block change into a two-hour block. We've seen the organization of the priesthood, the young men, the young women change. We've seen the one-year waiting period for temple marriages change. And we've seen more than that. And these changes can be disorienting. We've had some changes that may cause us to ask the question, what can I count on that won't change? And so really, that is my question for today's podcast. What can I count on? What things do we do in the church are doctrines? And what things are practices? So today... That's what we're going to explore. We're going to explore those questions, and we're going to explore those questions by discussing the sacrament in detail. And let's just start by defining doctrine. What is doctrine? So the official definition of doctrine from the dictionary is, quote, a principle or position or the body of principles in a branch of knowledge or symptom, system of belief. But also the dictionary says that it is something that is taught, And that part makes the definition difficult because it doesn't give us really a solid footing, right? There are lots of things that are taught in the church, and I'm not sure that we would all consider them doctrine. During education week a couple of years ago at BYU, I went to a lecture by a professor named Dr. Michael Goodman. He's a religion professor at BYU, and he has studied this idea of doctrine. He's studied the way that apostles and the scriptures talk about doctrine. He has a really excellent podcast on this, which I'll link to in the show notes. But based on his findings, he emphasizes three criteria by which we can define doctrine. And and as he's emphasizing these ideas, he iterates that 
these ideas are actually preached by the brethren and by the scriptures, and we'll get into that in a minute. But his three criteria are, number one, doctrine is consistent through time. Number two, doctrine is consistently and frequently taught by the brethren. And number three, doctrine focuses on salvation. So before we go any farther with that definition, let's actually look at evidence from church publications and church leadership that we can use those three criteria as an actual definition for doctrine. So that first criteria, doctrine is consistent throughout time. We have quite a few statements from the brethren and publications that say that this is true. Elder Bednar, for example, says, quote, as I travel around the church, I find the word doctrine is not very well understood. Sometimes we think doctrine refers to weird, abstract, mysterious subjects in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I refer to doctrine, I'm not talking about how many light years it is to Kolob and who lives there. Rather, doctrine refers to the eternal, unchanging, and simple truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are several key words in that definition, eternal, unchanging, simple, and truth. Doctrines are never altered. They never vary. They will always be the same. You can always count on them. Close quote. And then we have Elder Boyd K. Packer saying, quote, procedures, programs, the administrative policies, even some patterns of organization are subject to change. We're quite free Indeed, quite obliged to alter them from time to time. But the principles, the doctrines, never change. Close quote. We also have Elder Uchtdorf saying something very similar. Quote, Procedures, programs, policies, and patterns of organization are helpful for our spiritual progress here on earth, but let's not forget that they are subject to change. In contrast, the core of the gospel, the doctrine and the principles will never change, close quote. I feel like that's pretty adequate evidence to say that we're going to define doctrine as something that never changes. Let's go to the second criteria, which is doctrine is taught repeatedly by many of the brethren. So recently, Elder Anderson stated, quote, a few question their faith when they find a statement made by a church leader decades ago that seems incongruent with our doctrine. There's an important principle that governs the doctrine of the church. The doctrine is taught by all 15 members of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve. It is not hidden in an obscure paragraph of one talk. True principles are taught frequently and by many. Our doctrine is not difficult to find. Close quote. And then we have a publication that was released by the church newsroom to the media which states, quote, not every statement made by a church leader past or present necessarily constitutes doctrine. A single statement made by a single leader on a single occasion often represents a personal, though well-considered opinion, but it is not meant to be officially binding for the whole church. With divine inspiration, the first presidency, the prophet and his two counselors, and the quorum of the twelve apostles, the second highest governing body of the church, counsel together to establish doctrine that is consistently proclaimed in official church publications. This doctrine resides in the four standard works of Scripture, the Holy Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price, official declarations and proclamations, and the Articles of Faith. Let's move on and look at that final third criteria, which is doctrine is saving. Elder Bednar states, quote, 
a gospel doctrine is a truth, a truth of salvation revealed by a loving Heavenly Father. Gospel doctrines are eternal, do not change, and pertain to the eternal progression and exaltation of Heavenly Father's sons and daughters. Doctrines such as the nature of the Godhead, the plan of happiness, and the atonement of Jesus Christ are foundational, fundamental, and comprehensive. The core doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ are relatively few in number. Close quote. Now that we've found some evidence to back up this criteria, let's use those three criteria to evaluate some teachings that we're familiar with. Let's just, let's consider gravity for starters. So how does this apply to our criteria? Let's start with number one. Is it consistent through time? As far as we know, yeah, it's consistent. We've always had the law of gravity. Is this concept taught repeatedly and consistently by many of the brethren? No, it's not. I mean, they all live by the truth of gravity. They walk around and trust that that force will keep them in their seats at conference, but they don't really talk about it or discuss its importance. So the answer to number two is no. And then three, is it a saving concept? Is it salvific? Not really. I don't think our salvation depends on gravity. It might. I could be wrong, but I don't think it does. And I think if it did, we might hear more about it from the brethren at church. So we have, yes, it's consistent throughout time. It's not taught repeatedly by the brethren, and it's not a saving concept. So we can call it a truth. It's not even really a practice. It's not a doctrine. It's not one that the church is going to focus on because it doesn't save us. Let's look at another one. Let's try the atonement. So number one, is the atonement consistent through time? Yes, it is. It has always been the event that people have looked to to save them. There has never been any other way to be saved. Number two, is it taught repeatedly by many of the brethren? Yes. Prophets and apostles throughout time, not just in our dispensation, but consistently, have emphatically reiterated the importance of the to- of the power of the atonement. And then three, is it salvific? Does my salvation depend on the atonement? Absolutely it does. That is the main thing that my salvation depends on, right? So from these criteria, I can determine that the atonement is a doctrine. It's something I can count on. It's at the core of the gospel. It's not going to change. All right, let's consider something a little more tricky. Let's look at who holds the priesthood. I want to be really clear. We're not looking at the priesthood itself. We're looking at who holds it. So number one is who holds the priesthood consistent throughout time? No, it's not. In the Bible, the priesthood was restricted to the Levites. And in the modern church, Joseph Smith ordained any worthy males to the priesthood regardless of race. And then in 1852, President Brigham Young publicly announced that men of black African descent could no longer be ordained to the priesthood. And then in 1978, that was reversed. So that changes. Number two, do many of the brethren repeatedly and consistently teach who holds the priesthood? 
kind of. I mean, depending on the era, leaders of the church taught fairly consistently during that time. But again, those teachings change based on the current understanding. And then number three, is it salvific? Does my salvation depend on who holds the priesthood? No. Because as long as the priesthood is available and is held by someone who can provide me with necessary sacraments and ordinances, my salvation isn't impacted at all by who holds it. So based on this evaluation, we can determine that who holds the priesthood is a practice. It's subject to change. It's not a doctrine. This probably feels weird and uncomfortable, and I get that. And I'm not, I want to call out here that I'm not saying that this practice of who holds the priesthood or that any practice will change. I'm just saying that it is subject to change, that change is possible. And so my argument here is that it's better for us to put our faith and stake our testimonies on doctrines that are eternal rather than on practices that might change. Okay, so with that in mind, because today's section discusses the sacrament, I want to hone in on that one topic to see what aspects of the sacrament are doctrine and which are practices. And the pandemic has been really helpful here in causing a situation which reveals a lot of this to us. It teaches us or has taught us which parts of the sacrament are more flexible, right? So for example, many of us have been attending sacrament meeting virtually over the computer for a year. And the video streamed sacrament service is presented differently than when we would meet together. So prior to the pandemic, when we would actually physically be at seats at church, sacrament used to be in the middle of the meeting. It was after a hymn, a prayer, then a sacramental hymn, and then just before the talks. But because we don't video stream ordinances, my ward currently has the order of the sacrament meeting like this. It goes the prayer, the opening hymn, the talks, the closing hymn and closing prayer, and then the video streaming stops so that members in the congregation and members at home can both participate in partaking of the sacrament. So it clearly mattereth not what time of the meeting we have the sacrament, right? That's just a practice. That's not something that we can stake our testimonies on, nor would any of you. But historically, there have actually been a lot of changes to the sacrament that we're not as aware of, maybe. So we're going to kind of walk through a sacrament service and see what some of those changes have been. We're going to discuss how often we partake of the sacrament, how it's prepared, how it's blessed and passed, and how we're meant to think of it and consider it. So number one, first, when can we expect to partake of the sacrament? How often? So currently, we expect to partake of the sacrament weekly on every Sabbath. And here in the United States, that Sabbath is on Sunday. But in the early church, the sacrament was not always administered weekly, and it wasn't even close, actually. It also wasn't always administered on a Sunday. So a ton of my research today comes from Justin Bray. He's a church historian, and he has done just so much work on the history of the sacrament. It's really incredible, and I recommend you reading any of his work. It's really incredible. But according to Justin Bray, he said, quote, the Lord's Supper was administered for the first time in the Church of Christ on the day the church was organized, April 6th, 1830. 
when about 30 men and women gathered to partake of the bread and wine in remembrance of the Lord Jesus. And we're familiar with this. We talked about this last week. What we're not as familiar with was that it was on a Tuesday. He continues, the next best reference to the sacrament came three months later at the first general conference of the church held on June 9th, 1830, a Wednesday. Moreover, Sunday was not designated as the day to meet and administer the sacrament until August 1831, a year and four months after the organization of the church. In the meantime, the members were counseled to meet together often and administer the ordinance. However, because of persecution and continuous uprooting, the sacrament was only distributed when occasion permitted, which was apparently sporadic, according to early records. Close quote. I didn't know that. I found that really interesting. And I am familiar with the fact that a lot of other churches and other denominations don't hold the sacrament weekly, which I always thought was strange because in our culture, it's so ingrained into us that it's the most important part of service, right? But it wasn't until the mid-1890s that the frequency of partaking of the sacrament weekly became a standard practice. Okay, so the frequency has changed, but how has the preparation for the sacrament evolved over time? So now we expect that someone in the ward brings a loaf of bread to church and that members of the Aaronic priesthood wash the trays, prepare the table, and then during the blessing of the sacrament, they tear the bread into little pieces. But again, that's not the way it's always been done. To start with, it used to be that there was actually a lot more bread and water. According to the church website, quote, on special occasions, such as temple dedications during the 19th century, saints sometimes ate bread and drank wine or water until they were full, as described in 3 Nephi. Nancy, Naomi, Alexander, Tracy recollected how, in celebration of the Kirtland Temple dedication, the elders, quote, went from house to house, blessing the saints and administering the sacrament. Feasts were given. Three families joined together and held one at our house. We baked a lot of bread, close quote. In addition, the people responsible for sacrament preparation has also changed. According to church historian William Hartley, quote, women and custodians usually prepared the sacrament table. Metal sacrament trays needed to be polished, and fine white linen or lace tablecloths needed to be laundered, starched, and pressed, traditionally the work of women. Women also baked the sacrament bread in many wards. Kate Corliss of Salt Lake City's fourth ward took care of the sacrament table for a quarter century after 1906. She crocheted the cloth, polished the silver trays, baked and sliced the bread, and set the sacrament table. As late as 1943, the presiding bishopric publicized for bishops the example of young women in one ward who take care of washing and sterilizing the sacrament sets after each service. Annette Stenique Huntington recalled that during the 1930s in Emigration Stake, the, quote, young girls in MIA filled the water cups in the kitchen and placed the bread on the trays. We then prepared the sacrament table with the cloth and trays on it. It was a wonderful privilege I shall always remember. Close quote. I think this component of women helping prepare is interesting, although in some ways this has definitely changed. It is not really an acceptable practice anymore for women to prepare the sacrament table or the trays, but it does still seem to be acceptable for women to take care of the cloth, to provide crocheted tablecloths if they would like, or to bake bread for the sacrament. In fact, in 2016, our family moved into a very tiny town in central Utah, and it was very immediately apparent to my kids that the bread was different for the sacrament. Sister Kim Christensen 
makes the bread there still most Sundays before church. And I will say that our family really, really looked forward to that. During the pandemic, I have also taken the opportunity to make bread for the sacrament. And I would also say that this has been a great privilege for me. Okay, so we've discussed the frequency of the sacrament, how it's prepared, but what about the way it's blessed? So today, if you were to go to church, you would expect that when the sacrament prayer is said, the person being the voice of the prayer will be kneeling. And he reads the prayer from a prayer card. And if he skips a word, you can expect that the bishop will shake his head, which means that the prayer needs to be said again so that the prayers are said exactly as they're written in the Book of Mormon. And surely this has been consistent over time, right? No, (laughs) because in 1873, Brigham Young gives an address in Paris, Idaho. He's speaking to a congregation, and his sermon leads us to believe that maybe there hasn't always been this very rigid following of the prayers. This was reported by John Q. Cannon. He says that Brigham Young said, quote, I will give you a word of counsel here with regard to consecrating the bread and the water, which I want the saints to remember. When you, and he's addressing the bishops and elders, administer the sacrament, take this book, and he's holding up the Doctrine and Covenants, and read this prayer. Take the opportunity to read this prayer until you can remember it. You cannot get up anything that is better and not even equal to it. And when you read it, read it so the people can hear you. The people have various ideas with regard to this prayer. They sometimes cannot hear six feet from the one who's praying, and in whose prayer perhaps there are not three words of the prayer that is in this book that the Lord tells us that we should use. Close quote. That's fascinating to me. I just had no idea that this wasn't always the standard. It sounds like they did always try to replicate the prayer and the Doctrine and Covenants, but they were maybe in some cases doing it not very well. And it didn't matter. They just continued to pass the sacrament. But Brigham Young is saying, no, you have to remember it. And now we have this standard where if we miss a word, we go back and do it again. So I thought that was fascinating. Also, the way the prayer has been done has differed over time. We have actually pictures of the sacrament being blessed where hands, both hands were upheld in the air. And I'll link to that picture in the show notes if you'd like to see that. Also, sometimes hands were held to the square to bless the sacrament. And now, of course, it's a kneeling prayer with arms folded, presumably. I actually don't know. I've never watched behind the table. I don't know. Um, Okay, so we've seen that the way the sacrament is blessed has changed a little bit. So let's talk about how the sacrament has been passed. We see some of the same kinds of changes. So again, today, if you were to go to a church service, you could expect to see the young men of the ward, boys ages 12 to 18, dressed in white shirts and ties, lining up to pass the sacrament. And this, again, is not quite the way things have always been. So first of all, the sacrament has not always been passed by the young men. It used to be passed by the older men of the church. In fact, it wasn't always the case that young men held the priesthood. The priesthood was usually given to men, but that started to change in the late 1800s. And then according to our friend, Justin Bray, the idea for young men to pass the sacrament, quote, began among local congregations throughout Utah, particularly in St. George and Salt Lake City. In 1908, Joseph F. Smith, 
president of the LDS Church, officially turned the administration of the sacrament over to the young men. He wanted to give the boys, quote, something to do that will make them interested in the work of the Lord, close quote. And that totally makes sense, right? We want everyone to have an active place in the church where they're participating and helping and engaged. But it must have been that at some point, maybe wards didn't have young men to pass the sacrament because later on in 1928, Heber J. Grant addresses this. So let's go back to historian Justin Bray. He says, quote, even passing sacrament trays among the congregation requires no priesthood authority. With or without priesthood, men, women, and children, one by one, pass the sacrament tray or cups to the next person down the row. Recognizing this reality, President Heber J. Grant wrote to a mission president in 1928 that there was, quote, no rule in the church, close quote, that only priesthood bearers could carry the sacrament to the congregation after it was blessed. While it was custom for priesthood men or boys to pass around the bread and water, Heber J. Grant said, quote, it would in no wise invalidate the ordinance if some worthy young brethren lacking priesthood performed it in the absence of ordained boys, close quote, and he had no objection if it were done, close quote. So that whole statement was just by Justin Bray with interjections in there from Heber J. Grant. Secondly, the clothing of those passing the sacrament has not always been so uniform to be that, you know, white shirt and tie that you're typically seeing. When the sacrament was turned over to the young men, there seemed to be some serious concerns about their reverence. So apparently they would come in wearing tattered clothes. The deacons would talk and whisper and snicker and make unnecessary annoying noises during the sacrament. They were just distracting to the overall reverence of the meeting. And so the local wards did a lot to try to straighten them up. They tried to hold regular one-on-one priesthood interviews. They tried social events. I guess they just tried lecturing them at length, which as a parent, I can attest is always the best solution. (laughs) No, really, apparently the most effective approach in disciplining those deacons was instituting uniforms. These identical white shirts, black ties, and bow ties. And I actually have a picture of this and I'll link to that in the show notes as well. But because the leaders saw so much success in the implementation of those uniforms, they started trying out other rules as well. They tried formalizing the posture of the deacons, making them march to and from the sacrament table, making sure that their arms, as they held the sacrament trays, were at a right angle. And those local practices, in some cases, became more and more and more formal. In fact, there's this amusing story that... Robert L. Simpson tells. He is a former member of the presiding bishopric, and he tells a story about when he was a deacon in the 1930s. He says, quote, our new chapel had just been dedicated. It was beautiful. We were so proud. We even had a separate sacrament alcove behind the bishopric seats on the stand. Bit by bit, we tried to enhance our sacrament service. Red velour drapes were installed to be drawn apart at the precise psychological moment. Smaller drapes, revealing a picture of the Last Supper, were drawn just before the sacrament prayers were given. 
All of the deacons wore white shirts and black bow ties. And last but not least, we had worked out a system of musical chimes to signal the opening of the drapes and the sacrament prayers. It was the most beautiful and dramatic sacrament presentation ever devised in any dispensation. Even the stake president was impressed, so much so that he invited President Heber J. Grant to come and see the church's new Hollywood version of the sacrament. President Grant accepted the invitation and witnessed what turned out to be our final presentation. (laughs) We were taught in unmistakable but kindly terms what the sacrament should be. I'll never forget that lesson. It was valuable not only to me, but to everyone else in that ward and in that stake. You know, I really would love to have been part of those wards at that time because I think that maybe some of those sacrament practices had become so important maybe to them and so much a source of pride. I wonder if it was disheartening to them when those were discouraged by the leadership of the church. But according to Joseph Fielding Smith, there was concern about these practices for the following reason. He said, quote, These changes and innovations are innocently adopted, but in course of time, there is the danger that they will become fixed customs and considered as necessary to the welfare of the church, close quote. I think that really gets at the heart of the difference between practices and doctrines, right? He's saying, if we can't separate the doctrine, the thing that actually matters from the practice, then we're going to have confusion and difficulty. And I think we do see that still, which is why we're talking about that today. So we've discussed the preparation, the blessing, and the passing of the sacrament. Let's talk about what happens during the sacrament and how the sacrament is served. So again, today when we go to church, we can expect that during the sacrament, there is an attempt, at least, at quiet during the sacrament. Depending on the word you attend, that may be more or less successful because there are usually babies and kids that make a lot of noise. But again, the goal is for quiet. And Presumably, the purpose of that is so people can ponder the atonement. But that silence has not always been the standard. According to Terrell Givens, quote, Originally, people gave sermons or read scriptures during the administration of the sacrament. On one occasion, a scribe noted Brigham Young saying, quote, The sacrament is being administered, and we would like to talk about the spiritual welfare of the people. In the first half of the 20th century, music during the sacrament was the norm. In 1946, the First Presidency decreed absolute quiet during the passing of the sacrament as the ideal condition. Close quote. And you can find that quote in Terrell Givens' excellent book, Feeding the Flock. Again, I highly recommend that. We've talked about that before. Okay. So in addition, the water was not always served in little cups. I remember as a child going to Catholic Mass with one of my friends, and she invited me to go up and take communion with her, and it was grape juice served in a common cup, and the priest, with some kind of rag, wiped the rim of the cup between each person, and I thought that was so, I don't know, kind of a weird but interesting practice at the time. But it turns out that the common cup was a practice that Latter-day Saints were using from the very beginning of their services in the early church. It was meant to be symbolic of unity and communion among the saints. But 
as you can imagine, eventually this practice started to cause issues. And maybe it was a matter of the church growing in size and the fact that when the saints first came to Utah, the sacrament was served in the tabernacles in huge groups of people, not just ward congregations. A member of the church from San Pete County said, quote, It was interesting to watch people as the water goblets were passed to them. Some would carefully turn the goblet so they could drink right over the handle. Others placed their hands on each side of the goblet and tipped it up, but did not actually touch their lips to it. Still others sipped obediently, then wiped their lips vigorously with handkerchiefs to remove any trace that might have been picked up from previous drinkers. Close quote. This might be where if you are squeamish, I don't know, you might want to fast forward a couple seconds, but... Again, our favorite historian on this subject, Justin Bray, wrote an article for the church website. It was about how the pandemic of 1918 influenced this common cup in the sacrament. And we'll get to that specific issue of influenza in a minute, but he introduces that article in a pretty funny way. He says, quote, On a Sunday evening in the 1880s, a young Latter-day Saint named Margaret Williams traveled with her mother from their home in Samaria, Idaho, to a sacrament meeting in the Bear Lake Stake Tabernacle in Paris, Idaho. Williams later wrote that she and her mother sat in the gallery on the south side of the tabernacle balcony close to the stand. The mother and daughter were almost certainly running late for the service to settle for such an undesirable area of the meeting house. This was a time before individual sacrament cups, a time in which churchgoers all sipped from the same shared goblet. And where Williams and her mother were sitting, they were all but guaranteed to be among the last to drink. In a stunning reversal from 21st century Latter-day Saint sacrament meetings, the front rows of the meeting house were the most coveted seats in the 19th century, because by the time the cup reached the back of the room and into the gallery, some reported that it contained all kinds of debris, hair, and foul smells. You can imagine the look of horror on Williams's face when the older man next to her, in her words, took a sip and his red mustache was floating on top of the water. (laughs) Though feeling a bit squeamish, Williams dutifully took her turn. She said, I have always been delicate in my stomach, she later wrote. That day was no exception. It rolled completely over. Close quote. Okay, so apparently the cup carried with it all sorts of things, including beard hairs or bits of food. People could apparently taste spearmint that other members of the congregation had been chewing on, or as George Q. Cannon put it, even, quote, the fumes of tobacco were in the water, close quote. So as you are, probably, people are getting really grossed out by this communal cup. In 1916, which is about two years before the Spanish flu pandemic, the Murray First Ward saved their sacrament cup after passing it around, and they had it tested by the Salt Lake County Physician's Office. And the results of that test showed that there were, quote, not less than six contagious diseases, close quote, remaining in that sacrament cup. And as a result, members of the ward wrote to church headquarters, in pretty passionate terms, they said, quote, we feel that another Sunday should not pass until we can abolish this most unsanitary practice. We therefore subscribe our names to the following amounts, close quote. And they attached pages of signatures along with 75, a $75 and 50 cent receipt for 
purchasing individual sacrament cups with their own money, which at that time would have been about $1,400. Well, this movement toward change in the communal sacrament cup was not initially embraced by the church. It was actually a huge concern because the common cup had been introduced and used by the prophet Joseph Smith, and so it was considered really important to the sacrament service. And some people argued that because the sacrament had been blessed, no harm could come from it. Well, it's interesting that members in Salt Lake felt so strongly about this that they organized their own committee. And you can see how this would happen, right? Because people have a testimony of the sacrament. They want to partake of it, but they really can't stomach the way that it's being administered. So they went to their bishop and their stake president after forming this committee to change the practice to individual sacrament cups. But both both the bishop and the stake president said that they didn't have the authority to make that change. So eventually that committee met with the president of the church at that time, Joseph F. Smith, and he said that he did not think the saints would approve of any change in the sacrament service, and he did not want a failed attempt with sacrament cups to, quote, be charged against him, close quote. One member of that committee said at that point that the outlook seemed bad for us. <laughs> but then apparently President Smith stopped talking, and he and according to the committee member, he, quote, looked at the floor a minute or two. Then he looked at us and smiled and said, I have it. I'll turn the matter over to the Council of the Twelve. Then they can take the blame for the failure. Close quote. Furthermore, Justin Bray says that, quote, according to President Smith's diary, he met with the Council of the Twelve on December 15th, 1910, and the question of the use of these individual cups was discussed and approval given for their use in the 18th Ward. Close quote. So this wasn't a general church population thing at that time. This was just for that specific ward. That same day, President Smith met once again with one of these committee members and gave permission that they could test the cups, but he told them that they needed to pay for them themselves. He said, quote, I can pay for it, but I do not want anyone to say of me after I am dead that I spent the hard-earned tithing money on experiments, close quote. I think in this statement of President Smith's, we see a tension between this respect for tradition and this also need for change. I think it's actually a really important element of revelation. It'll come up in a later podcast. And so I think it's just really important for us to consider the difficulty of that tension and to kind of respect the position that those leaders are in and just kind of keep that in mind for later when we talk about other issues. Okay, so the Salt Lake City 18th Ward is usually using individual cups. And that practice starts to occur in individual wards here and there. Like we talked about, the Murray Ward started to do it. But it's not a widespread practice. Then we have the outbreak of influenza. It's been so interesting for me to read the history of how influenza impacted the church and to see all the parallels between that pandemic and the one we're in now. So at that time, the Utah State Board of Health banned all public gatherings beginning on October 11th, 1918. Entire cities were quarantined. Um, Beulah Leona Andrus, who was a Latter-day Saint in Idaho, she described how church meetings were canceled on Sundays. She said, quote, I remember too, during the flu epidemic of 1918, of having our sacrament service in the home. I recall so well the lessons and the bearing of testimony, close quote. And I love that because I really hope that 
my children have some of those same memories. <laughs> we're not perfect at it, but I think it's such a unique opportunity that we're given right now to do that. Anyway, okay, so after the public gatherings were banned, the disease continued to spread. And there were 1,500 cases and 117 deaths reported in just four weeks. And then during the June 1919 General Conference, uh, President Grant told the congregation that 1,000 members had died from the influenza outbreak in just nine months. And actually, according to Justin Bray, later statistics showed that over 2,600 Utahns alone died from the disease between 1918 and 1919. So for comparison, as of March 14th, 2021, when I was compiling my research for this episode, they, uh, Utah's Department of Health has reported 2,027 coronavirus deaths, which is fewer than the deaths that occurred in Utah between 1918 and 1919. And also the population now is significantly higher than it was at that time. The population of Utah in 1918 was 437,000 and the population in Utah in 2020 was 3.28 million. So, so ratio wise, the deaths were impacting the saints in the 1918 and 1919 congregations a little more than we've seen deaths now. So that influenza outbreak was a wake-up call to the church. Before Heber J. Grant, the first presidency had been less than excited about changing the sacrament. According to Justin Bray, again, they, quote, slowly implemented the individual cups over six years between 1912 and 1918. But the cups had hardly spread outside of Salt Lake City, However, the church immediately took a different position on the use of individual sacrament cups after the passing of Joseph F. Smith, and he passed away during the pandemic, not, not from influenza, but of other causes, and immediately the church implemented individual sacrament cups. Another part of partaking of the sacrament that has seen real swings in its prominence in the church is which hand to partake of the sacrament with, and this one is, is really funny to me because this very thing is what my mom used to teach me the difference between doctrine and practice. She told me that my grandpa used to caution that when people say you shouldn't take the sacrament with the left hand, that that's a cultural thing. It's not a doctrine. And he is totally backed up by the publications of the church in his time. In 1946, according to Justin Bray, Quote, Joseph Fielding Smith spoke against the practice among members to cautiously take the sacrament only with the right hand. Close quote. And I think this is a call back to that 1930s statement where they wanted to avoid over formalism in the sacrament, right? In fact, as he's discussing something else, George Q. Cannon writes down, quote, there was a disposition among our people to be very technical and to attach importance to things that were in and of themselves not so important. Brother Brigham Young illustrated it also by telling how he had been corrected for pouring the oil with his left hand and anointing the sick. Of course, we know it is right to use the right hand in anointing, but a great many people become very strenuous on small matters as though they were of importance, close quote. And so we see this lack of emphasis on this formalism 
of using the left versus the right hand and and things like that. Well, from the 1940s to the 1950s, multiple church publications stated that there isn't any rule about which hand should be used, although they say that the right hand is, quote, customary, close quote. But then in the 1950s, we start to see a slight swing. So Joseph Fielding Smith, who a decade before had said, it doesn't really matter which hand you use, as an apostle, he says, quote, it is a well-established practice in the church to partake of the sacrament with the right hand and also to anoint with the right hand, according to the custom which the scriptures indicate is and always was approved by divine injunction, close quote. And then in the 1980s, we see a few apostles here and there mentioning the symbolism of taking the sacrament with the right hand. And then, right before our current pandemic, when the new church handbook was released in February of 2020, we see a swing toward a little bit more toward this formalism because the handbook states, quote, members partake of the sacrament with their right hand when possible, close quote. At the end of this episode, we'll kind of talk about you know, what those changes can mean for us and how we can look at those kinds of changes. But by far, one of the most important changes we've seen in the sacrament is how we consider the meaning of the sacrament. So according to Terrell Givens, quote, over time, the emphasis of the sacrament shifted from worship commemorating Christ's offering to introspection, which was renewal of covenants and self-checking, close quote. And commonly, we hear now that the sacrament is a time for us to renew our baptismal covenant. We hear that the sacrament itself is a cleansing ordinance. In fact, I just went in to my daughter's baptismal interview with the bishop, and he emphasized that even though she's going to be baptized and she'll be clean, she gets a chance to get re-cleansed again every time she partakes of the sacrament. But that has actually not always been the underlying meaning of the sacrament. Um, in 2015, Apostle Elder Neil Anderson states, quote, the title, Renewing Our Baptismal Covenants, is not found in the scriptures. It's not inappropriate. Many of you have used it in talks. We have used it in talks. But it's not something that's used in the scriptures, and it can't be the keynote of what we say about the sacrament, close quote. So that's another thing for us to reconsider. That's one of those things that's been really embedded in our memories as a people, but it's changeable even. All right. So overall, all these things we've discussed, the sacrament, the way it's been prepared, blessed, distributed, some of what it means in our culture, all of that has seen significant changes over time. So I think based on our criteria, we can safely call all of those things that we've discussed today practices. But while we're at it, let's just take a look at the whole sacrament itself. Is it a doctrine or is it a practice? Has the sacrament been consistent through time? Well, no. I mean, we have seen these little changes to the sacrament in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but even before that, like way before that, we know that the sacrament was instituted by Jesus Christ before his death. So covenant people were not always partaking of the sacrament. It's not been eternal. Do prophets speak about it regularly? Yes, they absolutely do. 
So there's this tool on the internet called the General Conference Corpus. You can search a word and see how often it has been used in general conference talks since the 1850s. And I did that with the sacrament. And the sacrament has been mentioned consistently in general conference talks since the 1850s. And it has almost consistently increased in mentions up through the 21st century. So there is no doubt about it. It is consistently taught by the brethren. Let's go to number three. Is the sacrament salvific? This one is a little tricky because actually by the church, it's not really considered a saving ordinance. But does it point us to the atonement, which is the saving doctrine of the gospel? Yeah, it does. So is the sacrament itself doctrine? I don't think so. It doesn't really meet those criteria. It seems to be a practice, though, that points us toward the doctrine of the atonement. So, okay, so what does that mean? Does that mean that the sacrament is unimportant? Does that mean that because it's a practice, it's insignificant? Absolutely not. It does not mean that. The only thing that means is that the sacrament is subject to change. It means that when we have to use crackers instead of bread, or when the leadership of the church starts emphasizing taking the sacrament with our right hand, we don't question our testimonies because our testimonies weren't based on those practices, right? I mean, our testimonies are based on the unchanging doctrine of the atonement. The atonement is the same throughout time. Practices throughout time have always pointed toward the atonement, even though those practices change. For example, we have had animal sacrifices in the past. That points toward the atonement, but we don't do that anymore. We partake of the sacrament, and that points us toward the atonement. So why do practices change in the first place? Well, that same statement I read before from the church newsroom says something that is really valuable in considering this question. It states, quote, because different times present different challenges, modern day prophets receive revelation relevant to the circumstances of their day. This follows the biblical pattern in which God communicated messages and warnings to his people through prophets in order to secure their well-being. This living, dynamic aspect of the church provides flexibility According to the Articles of Faith, we believe all that God has revealed, all that He does now reveal, and we believe that He will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Close quote. I think this statement is incredible in its simplicity because it reveals that when practices change, it's because those practices are meant for our time. The practice isn't meaningless because it's changeable. In fact, the fact that it is changeable could make it more meaningful because it's a practice that's instituted by the prophets for our time. Now, I get that it might not always feel that way. It might be that you really struggle with a practice that occurred in the past or is happening now. So what can you do if it feels like a practice is too difficult? Well, first of all, I suggest that you find some context and really study that practice out. I think that it is really helpful to consider the situation from the angles of all the people involved. 
I was in a virtual book club last month and we were discussing pioneering the vote, which the subtitle is the untold story of suffragists in Utah and in the West. And the author, Nyland McBain, was there to present to us and she answered our questions. And the conversation was really interesting as she discussed her process in researching the topic. She said that whenever she's studying history, she reminds herself, quote, there are no villains. That's my mantra, close quote. I just love that approach. I feel like that applies to historical practices, but also to current practices. I think it's so important to remember that leaders are doing their best to receive revelation and meet the needs of the people at church, and sometimes mistakes are made. We talked about that in last week's episode, right? But that's part of being in the church experience. That's part of learning how to practice Christianity. So as you're wrestling with practices you're struggling with, make sure to study the context from all angles. The second thing is that although studying the practice from all angles can give us some context and understanding, at the same time, we shouldn't mistake that context for the reason the practice is taking place. It's not our place to give reasons for the practices. And and we all learned this lesson as a church when apostles in decades before the priesthood ban was lifted tried to give reasons for its existence, right? And we have multiple quotes from church leaders now telling us that it's inappropriate to give reasons. So in an interview, Elder Oaks was asked about the reasons that had been given for the priesthood ban. And he said, quote, if you read the scriptures with this question in mind, why did the Lord command this? Or why did he command that? You find that in less than one in a hundred commands was any reason given. It's not the pattern of the Lord to give reasons. We can put reasons to commandments. When we do, we're on our own. Some people put reasons to the ban, and they turned out to be spectacularly wrong. There is a lesson in that. The lesson I've drawn from that, I decided a long time ago that I had faith in the command, and I had no faith in the reasons that had been suggested for it. Close quote. And then about the same issue, Elder Holland tried to grant some understanding and compassion to the leaders who had given the wrong reasons, but he continued to emphasize that they were wrong. He said, quote, one clear cut position is that the folklore must never be perpetuated. I have to concede to my earlier colleagues. They, I'm sure in their own way, were doing the best they knew to give shape to the policy, to give context for it, to give even history to it. All I can say is, however well intended the explanations were, I think almost all of them were inadequate and or wrong. It probably would have been advantageous to say nothing, to say we just don't know. And as with many religious matters, whatever was being done was done on the basis of faith at that time. But some explanations were given and had been given for a lot of years. At the very least, there should be no effort to perpetuate those efforts to explain why that doctrine existed. I think, to the extent that I know anything about it, as one of the newer and younger ones to come along, we simply do not know why that practice was in place. Close quote. Historical context can give us some understanding for our leaders when they mistakenly gave reasons for certain things, but I think it's better that we learn from them And when we struggle with practices and we don't know why things happened, we can really just simply answer, I don't know. I also think it's important as you're studying practices to recognize that you're under no obligation to believe 
reasons that don't agree with the scriptures. This one I realize is a little bit uh, controversial, probably, but I'm going to quote Harold B. Lee, who said, quote, someone has rightly said that it is not to be thought that every word spoken by our leaders is inspired. It is not to be thought that every word spoken by the general authorities is inspired or that they are moved upon by the Holy Ghost in everything that they write. I don't care what his position is. If he writes something or speaks something that goes beyond anything that you can find in the standard church works, unless that one be the prophet, seer, and revelator, please note that one exception, you may immediately say, well, that is his own idea. And if he says something that contradicts what is found in the standard church works, you may know by that same token that it is false, regardless of the position of the man who says it. We can know or have the assurance that they are speaking under inspiration if we so live that we can have a witness that what they are speaking is the word of the Lord. There is only one safety, and that is that we shall live to have the witness to know. Close quote. I think that's such helpful advice. Okay, so even though Harold B. Lee says we're under no obligation to believe reasons that don't agree with the scriptures, we still don't preach against practices the church teaches us we don't agree with. And that's made very clear to us in section 28, which we're studying this week. The Lord says very clearly to Oliver Cowdery, quote, and thou shalt not command him who is at thy head and at the head of the church, close quote. And this might be a hard pill to swallow if we feel like something's wrong, a practice is incorrect. But we're not the first people who've had to do it. Oliver had to do this many, many times. We talked about that in episode two. I love Oliver. And I think of the many people who followed this injunction for an extended period of time during the priesthood ban. One of those people who I admire so much was interviewed in a recent church podcast by the Joseph Smith Papers. So his name is Marcus Martins. He's a professor of religion at BYU-Hawaii, and he's a Black Latter-day Saint. His family joined the church in Brazil in 1972 when Marcus was 13. In the interview, the host of the podcast asked Professor Martins how his family received the gospel when they learned about the priesthood restriction. He responded, Quote, the full-time missionaries in those days had a special lesson. We used to call them discussions. It was the seventh discussion, and that dealt with the temple and priesthood restriction. And so, as far as priesthood restriction then, well, the missionaries taught that seventh lesson to us. At that point, we already had made up our minds that we were going to be baptized. In fact, I remember that I was the first one to express that vocally in my home. I told my parents, Look, I don't know about you, but I want to be a member of this church. I want to be baptized. And they were very relieved because they had already decided to be baptized, but they were kind of unsure how to break the news to me. So it was a happy moment there. I cannot say that I was happy with the prevailing notion back then that somehow I would have been less valiant in the pre-existence and that Cain's curse was befalling me thousands of years later. I was not happy with that, but I accepted it on faith and said, okay, so be it. If that's the price we'll have to pay for membership in this church, we'll pay the price. Close quote. The next thing I think we can do is remind ourselves of our stakes. So what are those doctrines you're committed to? 
that you've chosen with your whole heart to believe in that will never change and that are saving. We've already talked before about what my stakes are. I think that was in the first episode. But my first stake is that our heavenly parents love all of their children. I see everything through that lens. I kind of think of it as the other side of Jesus's injunction to his disciples. He tells them to love the Lord thy God and love thy neighbor as thyself. And on these hang or depend all the law and the prophets. And I feel that same way about the commandments that God has given us. They exist. They depend on his love for us. So in case you haven't really worked out your stakes yet, the church has a list of nine basic doctrines. And those doctrines meet all those criteria that we already talked about. So they're unchanging through time. They continue to be taught by the brethren and they're salvific. In fact, the new seminary curriculum bases scripture mastery mostly off this basic doctrines list. So if you need a place to start, a way of looking at some of these practices, reviewing that basic doctrines list is a great place to begin. And I will link to that in my show notes as well. The last thing I'd recommend is that once you've reoriented yourself and reminded yourself of what those unchanging salvific doctrines of the church are, try reframing that practice within that doctrine and and try reconsidering what you might learn from the practice from that angle. Let me give you an example. Let's talk about women in the priesthood. I'm going to be honest here. I really hesitate sharing this example because I know this can be a very sensitive topic and I don't want to minimize anybody's experience or their preference. But this method has still provided me with great insight into this current practice. So let's say I've already worked through the previous steps and my next step is to remind myself of my stakes. I've already explained that my primary stake is that Heavenly Father loves His children. It's through that lens that I see everything, so I always start there. I already know that the priesthood isn't restricted because He loves some of His children less or because He wants them to have less access to His power. I choose not to view the practice from that angle because the scriptures teach me that's not the takeaway. I also know from having studied context in the first steps that the priesthood has always been delegated to certain groups of people. It's always been restricted from other groups of people, but it's always been the job of the bearers of the priesthood to serve all of God's children. And so from that angle, one way that I perceive priesthood restriction is that it reminds me that God expects us to be interconnected. He expects us to depend on each other. The way that the priesthood is exercised reminds me that salvation is a communal effort. It requires me to receive blessings and ordinances at the hand of someone else. I can't perform those ordinances for myself. And in that way, the priesthood also points to the Savior and reminds me of His atonement and is a further reminder that I can't do for myself what the Savior has done for me. And that brings us back to one of our most important core doctrines. Joseph Smith stated, quote, The fundamental principles of our religion are concerning Jesus Christ, that he died, was buried, and rose again the third day and ascended into heaven, 
and all other things which pertain to our religion are only appendages to it. Close quote. As we've looked over the differences between practices and doctrines, particularly as they pertain to the sacrament, my hope is that we can wrestle with these practices that change or ones that might bother us. And that as we wrestle with them, we'll be able to center our faith on those core doctrines and that we can seek to find ways that the practices we're using now can point us toward those doctrines. Thanks so much for listening to today's Come Follow Me discussion. If you have any questions or would like to review the references for today's show, please take a look at the show notes. If you liked today's episode, please share on social media or leave a review. It will help more people hear about it. See you next week.